Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Rothermere American Institute, especially to those of you for whom this is their first visit. I'm Nigel Burns, I'm director of the Institute, and it's a pleasure to see you all here this evening. Uh, nobody who was live in, on 22nd November 1963 and above approximately the age of five or six will forget where she or he was on this day, nor where she was when told of the death of John Kennedy, and it's right that we should mark the occasion this evening. And we mark it in a rather special way. We mark it with the author of the much the best biography of the president who succeeded John Kennedy, Lyndon Johnson, in the person of Randall Woods, a distinguished Wyland professor of government of the RAI this year. Randall, it's a great pleasure to have your company. And Randall will speak to us a little later uh, about those events and what followed those terrible events. And to begin, we welcome a distinguished fellow of the Institute, Godfrey Hodgson. And I want to take this opportunity of saying something about Godfrey and just noting, if I may, this audience his remarkable contribution to this place. Because not only has Godfrey regularly uh, accepted invitations to speak here, not only has he held audiences on all manner of subjects wrapped by what he has to say, his is an experience both intellectual and journalistic, uh, journalist of the very highest standing, who was in Washington, working in Washington as the Washington correspondent of the Observer in the early 1960s, was there on 22nd November 1963, and therefore speaks from experience as well as a half a century's reflection, thought, reading, and engagement with and upon American politics and political history. Godfrey is also a person who's marked this place by what he has done for us in terms of his gifts. And he has given his papers to the RAI. Um, and for that, Godfrey, we are deeply grateful. It is a most valuable collection. And I urge everyone here to take the opportunity of seeing the small excerpts from Godfrey's collection of papers, now in the Vera Harmsworth Library upstairs, which have been so brilliantly curated, if I may say this in front of her, by the Vera Harmsworth librarian, Jane Lawson, beautifully displayed. And they bring vividly to life both the remarkable depth of Godfrey's writing on American politics and history. Um, writing from close up, but always with, always with perspective always with deep awareness of context. Um, so you will see, you have the opportunity of seeing Godfrey's work on display um, upstairs in the library now. And we thank both Jane for having made Godfrey's uh, work available to us and Godfrey for all that he has done to bring that work to us over the course of a long distinguished lifetime. Um, and I'm happy to announce to this audience that Godfrey has just been so kind as to give his consent to our wish here at the Institute that the seminar room in the library be named henceforth the Godfrey Hodgson Room in his honour. 
um, and that uh, gives me personal great pleasure to um, make that announcement. So without further ado, if I may, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome uh, Godfrey Hodgson to open this evening's event. Godfrey. Thank you very much, Nigel. I'm uh, going to be rather um, unseemly because I'm going to talk not only about uh, John F. Kennedy, but also compare and contrast him with his successor. I am at the moment trying to write a book about uh, Kennedy and Johnson, and uh, uh, I, I thought I would uh, and I'd sort of try to uh, tease out some of those thoughts uh, for you. Uh, I'll start by describing my own involvement. Uh, on the evening of November the 22nd, 1963, I went out to Andrews Air Force Base near Washington to meet the plane that was bringing back from Dallas the murdered President Kennedy and his newly sworn-in successor, Lyndon Johnson. The previous day, I'd returned from a short vacation in Jamaica and arranged to have lunch with my friend Dick Scott, the correspondent of The Guardian, uh, basically said he could fill me in on what had happened while we'd been away. Um, we were having lunch in a little restaurant downtown, and I heard somebody say on the radio in the restaurant, and half an ear I heard, the president's been shot. Uh, moments later, the radio said that it was serious, and I sort of stranded uh, Richard at the table and jammed myself into a payphone and stayed there for about two hours while people kicked on the door and shook it. Um, to try to sort of get somebody from my paper to Dallas and you know, make arrangements there and so forth. Uh, oddly enough, at that very moment, my wife was then working for a television news uh, a, a program in London, um, was also being sent to Dallas by her, but we didn't meet for another two years. Uh, but uh, that was something we had in common. Uh, so I hailed a cab uh, from the restaurant and I went out to Andrews Air Force Base which is in a suburb of, of Washington. And I, 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 and I found a small group of people there, one of whom was George Bundy, the, the President's National Security Advisor, who I did actually know slightly. So I found myself standing next to him, and we spoke in undertones. And then uh, John Kennedy's casket was lowered from the back of the plane, and famously, uh, Jackie Kennedy came down in this famous pink suit covered with his blood. Uh, and in the meanwhile, Robert Kennedy had been hiding in the builder's skip uh, because he didn't want to be interviewed by the press. And he shot past, dashed up the stairs, encountered Lyndon Johnson in the corridor of the, of the plane, refused to shake hands with Johnson and charged onwards. And that was the beginning of a kind of feud or a good deal of extremely bad temper between the, the Kennedy people and the Johnson people, which Johnson made a considerable and on the whole successful uh, effort to heal. But that was a reality, that, that there was that hostility and suspicion. Um, Johnson came down the steps right in front of us, and Mac Bundy stepped forward, and I saw he was carrying a, a sheaf of papers in a manila folder and he handed them to the new president. Uh, I imagine that what Bundy was doing was handing uh, Johnson uh, the, the latest reports on what was happening, for example, whether the Soviet Union had, uh, had uh, 
move to a higher level of awareness there, strategic forces and so forth, which on her way are not. Uh, but also, of course, an appraisal of the situation in Vietnam, where, where the American effort was in crisis at the time because of the uh, overthrow, largely uh, encouraged by the American embassy, and the murder, <coughs> not encouraged by the American embassy, of the president, Diem, of, of uh, Vietnam. So, um, what was happening was that, was that Lyndon Johnson, like the tragic hero of some Wagnerian epic, it was being handed his own fate because Vietnam was to be his nemesis. Uh, the two men, uh, JFK and LBJ, um, were linked together and at the same time torn apart in that tragic moment. They were, of course, very different men. Larry O'Brien, who worked as congressional liaison for both of them, and unlike others, got on very well with both of them, he said that probably two more different men ever did the same job. Over the last 50 years, their reputations have moved in opposite directions. Uh, Kennedy still evokes a golden memory for some, but on the whole, his reputation has gone down, and Lyndon Johnson's reputation, in part perhaps, thanks to uh, our colleague, uh, has, has risen. Um, but certainly, interesting, a, a few months after Kennedy's death, I, I say, uh, just under 50% of the popular vote went to Kennedy in 1960, 49.7%. Um, after his death, a few months after his death, 65% remembered that they'd voted for him. <laughs> <laughs> interesting fact. Um, journalists particularly saw Kennedy as a symbol of all that was young and modern, sophisticated and international, and they drew Johnson as a figure from an older grosser and more provincial culture. But Johnson set himself to reverse those judgments. Um, later, of course, uh, because of the war, which many called Johnson's War, uh, his reputation was lost beyond repair. But after Richard Nixon entered the White House, a crossover did begin between the reputations of the two presidents. Uh, as I said, Johnson's star rose, Kennedy's waned. Um, Johnson's sheer statue was enhanced rather than damaged, I think, by the sense that there was something crude and powerful about his for personal forcefulness. The columnist Joseph Alsop, a personal friend of Kennedy, agreed that there was something monstrous about Johnson. But he said, if you're going to work for a monster, the thing to remember was whether or not he was a benevolent monster. And Alsop was not the only one who came to remember LBJ as a benevolent monster. The Camelot legend was actually invented by Jackie Kennedy immediately after the assassination. It had nothing to do with the court of, of uh, King Arthur or the Round Table. It was really reflected a, a uh, Broadway musical <coughs> at the time, which Jackie uh, claimed her husband was uh, extremely keen on. I'm not sure that it wasn't her other than him, but it was a fan of Camelot. But it, it's true that uh, Kennedy's reputation was bolstered by the fact that some extremely brilliant writers and also some fairly shameless publicists uh, bolstered his, his reputation. Reviewing uh, the two massive biographies by Arthur Schlesinger and Ted Sorensen in 1966, I wrote that, quote, 
One could not live as a foreigner in Washington during the Kennedy years without being irritated into irrational outbursts by the mood which Schlesinger evokes. He said, this is a credit from Schlesinger, the future everywhere looked bright with hope. It was a golden interlude. Never had girls seemed so pretty and tunes so melodious. <coughs> tunes from Broadway musicals. Um, famously, Jackie Kennedy had great musicians to perform in the East Room of the, of the White House, and Kennedy much preferred it when uh, some uh, 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 dance band uh, was imported from New York to, to play for a party. When I, I, uh, I went on to say there was a quality about Kennedy as a man that was undeniable. He was intelligent and witty. He was brave and generous. He was skeptical, even philosophically pessimist, but he believed that men can improve their life through political action and that they must do so. <clears throat> when I wrote a profile of LBJ on the day after Kennedy's death, I summed him up by saying, he is a man who invites a certain cynicism. His virtues are hidden behind a roughish facade. He has a subtle intelligence and yet an utter lack of intellectuality. He will make a very American president of the United States. Now, the Kennedy people absolutely hated that. There was a rather amusing episode at the bar of the Driscoll Hotel, the first time that we went down as a White House press corps to, to Texas. <clears throat> and I was, I was braced by a journalist called Joe Kraft, who came up to me and said, you know, they used to send uh, civilized people from these English newspapers. <laughs> and, and Joe Kraft said, uh, the sort of people who'd been to, and he then listed the, precisely the two institutions where I had been educated. And uh, it, it's always stayed in me as a, as a reminder that there was a good deal of raw snobbery about the Kennedy uh, world, the Kennedy entourage. Not particularly about Jack Kennedy himself, but about the people who were... <coughs> <coughs> Johnson was, of course, no knight of the Kennedy Round Table, but he was a figure of historic dimensions. He was the culminating figure of the New Deal, and he aspired to be more than that. His lifelong ambition was not just to fulfill the social democratic ideals of the hero of his youth, Franklin Roosevelt, but to surpass them. In an astonishingly short time, that is just what he did. Ironically, Johnson's success, of course, was made easier by Kennedy's death. Paradoxically, Kennedy, the supposedly dashing young idealist, deliberately put off his more ambitious reform projects, such as civil rights reform, until a second term, whereas Johnson, the supposedly cynical political operator, went hell for leather for reform with little apparent concern for the possibility of failure. Jack Kennedy was, both in his intention and his achievements, essentially a foreign policy president. I won't go into that in detail, but... Uh, as the uh, outpouring of grief after his death demonstrated, he did appeal to deep scenes of idealism in many Americans. There was, however, in his great inaugural, no hint whatsoever that the United States might be imperfect in any way. Uh, we're, we're remembering, we're, we're talking about, uh, you know, two years before uh, Birmingham. Uh, he, there was no sign uh, in, in his inaugural uh, of any idea that uh, uh, the United States uh, uh, might need to, to embark upon a major program of, of domestic uh, reform. Um, 
there was no suggestion that the United States was imperfect in any way. Still less was, was there any suggestion that there might be any limits, military, financial, or psychological, to his guarantee of freedom to the world. Part of Kennedy's appeal, I believe, lay precisely in his affirmation of a new American sense of omnipotence. He certainly gave his admirers a new ambition to make the world over in the image of the United States, and that has had, I believe, fateful consequences. Um, what have we got here? Here we are. If uh, Kennedy gave primacy to international goals, the iconic representation of Johnson's aspiration was the speech he gave at Howard University on Independence Day in 1965. It was the absolute high watermark of American liberalism. It was not enough, he said, quote, just to open the gates of opportunity. All our citizens must have the ability to walk through those gates. He defined an even more ambitious goal. We seek not just legal equity, but human ability, not just equality as a right and a theory, but equality as a fact and equality as a result. Bold as that was, Johnson actually went further with his vision of what he called the Great Society. In a speech at the University of Michigan in 1964, he glimpsed a political ideal that would embrace not just the rebuilding of, quote, the entire urban United States, but a passionately felt aspiration towards a richer life of mind and spirit for all our citizens. Many Americans couldn't take uh, LBJ seriously as a preacher of political morality. They found his vision vitiated by uh, an undeniable crassness in his personal style, of which I suppose the most uh, remarkable illustration is that his habit of, of giving orders to his staff when enthroned on the toilet. Um, but Johnson did nevertheless catch a shaft of light that illuminated a real vision of the nation's destiny, a vision more ambitious perhaps than any of his predecessors, even Woodrow Wilson or Franklin Roosevelt. He, a couple of things, I don't want to go into huge detail. One, one thing was he had to overcome the problem of being Southern. Uh, in fact, Jack Kennedy himself told Walt Rostow in 1960, LBJ had, and I quote, the most legitimate claim to the nomination, but I do not believe a man with his accent from that part of the country can be nominated. Uh, in fact, I remember sitting next to a Harvard faculty wife at dinner in that same year, who said she couldn't respect a president who couldn't pronounce the word America, <laughs> meaning somebody who had a southern accent. Um, it was perhaps understandable that Yankees would see Johnson as a southerner. His main claim to political influence, his powerful performance as a majority leader in the Senate, owed a lot to his ability to ride herd on some pretty reactionary southern senators, Stenison Eastland, Harry Bird of Virginia, his dear friend, Dick Russell of Georgia. But in for truth, Johnson was far from being a typical southerner. For all his business friends in the, in the oil business, he was more of a populist than a conservative. Um, one of his aides, George Reedy, uh, said that there was a, in him a real streak of the sons of the wild jackass, which is what the Western populists called themselves. And in fact, Johnson's father represented the populist party, the People's Party, in the Texas legislature. And I like to think of LBJ as a grandson of the wild jackass. The, um, Kennedy was not, in fact, I mean, if there's one area where Johnson can unhesitatingly be called a liberal, it was on race. His record was not perfect there, 
But in fact, the Howard speech was no time-serving late conversion. Lyndon Johnson disliked racism all his life, and uh, that did not mean that he wasn't ready to come on like a good old boy with his southern colleagues in the Congress when it suited him. But his commitment to racial justice was earlier and far deeper than that of the Kennedy brothers. Robert Kennedy later, I think, did get it, but that's another story. A new book by the BBC's Nick Bryan called The Bystander makes this case rather well, I think. Um, Kennedy's biography, Richard, Reve uh, Richard Reeves, admitted that, quote, the only Negro he spent time with was his valet, George Thomas. Um, in fact, I think until the summer of 1963, the Kennedy brothers were far from aware of the fundamental importance of race in America, far less so than Lyndon Johnson. The two men guided the United States through years, seven years, that <coughs> changed both the nation and the world. Those years saw the end of the Roosevelt Coalition in politics in the Democratic Party. They saw the Kennedy-Johnson civil rights legislation trigger the transformation of the Democrat-Republican relationship into the now deep polarization between liberals and conservatives, between blue and red, and they saw the onset of the conservative ascendancy. At the moment, I'm trying to write a book which will illuminate, if it can't answer, two questions which I think are crucial to the evaluation of these two men. The first question is whether Jack Kennedy, if he had lived, would have escalated the war in Vietnam as Lyndon Johnson did in the, uh, the spring of 1965. And the second is whether, if he'd lived, Kennedy would have succeeded in persuading the Congress to pass anything like the extraordinary program of legislative reform that remains Johnson's monument, however tarnished or diminished by Vietnam. Neither <coughs> question is easily answered. Uh, perhaps the true answer is we shall never know. But my initial preconception is that the answers are respectively yes, Kennedy would have escalated, and no, Kennedy would not have passed two great civil rights statutes, Medicare, Medicaid, and the rest, including that very significant immigration uh, uh, bill, which, of course, has, has transformed the entire uh, future uh, character of American society. Fired by one assassin or by two, the bullets of Dallas, it seemed to me, ended the life of one great American president, and they made possible, I would argue, the career of an equally uh, great uh, and, uh, and uh, perhaps an even greater one. There we are. Um, Thank you very much indeed. I now invite Randall Woods to come and speak to us. I think he's going to do so from the podium. Thank you, Nigel. Uh, it's a delight to be here um, in, uh, at the Rothamere Institute uh, for my wife, Rhoda and I, uh, being in, in Oxford is an academic's dream. I thought that was a brilliant talk by uh, Godfrey uh, because I agree with everything he said. Uh, <laughs> uh, um, I'm sure that has nothing to do with my evaluation of it. Uh, I noticed uh, that today's, uh, oh, by the way, um, I'm going to tell you at the end of this talk uh, who actually shot Jack Kennedy, <laughs> or, or not. Um, I noticed that today's headline in the International New York Times was, quote, a bullet exposed America's darkness. Um, 
struck down in his prime and at a time when his presidency seemed on the verge of realizing its promise, uh, John F. Kennedy uh, was transformed almost overnight into a transcendent figure, uh, his every action encased in an aura of romance. Quote, what was killed in Dallas, journalist uh, James Reston wrote, was not only the president but the promise, the death of youth and the hope of youth, of the beauty and grace and the touch of magic. Uh, and then uh, for my generation there was bye-bye American Pie. Uh, I attended a conference at, uh, earlier in the month at the uh, British Library on JFK and his um, heritage and uh, the academics and journalists there were actually quite uh, critical. Um, and they all agreed that uh, of no other president that they have written about or know about has there been such a gap between the scholarly estimation uh, and the public estimation. So uh, later uh, on in my stay here, I'm going to give a talk about, uh, about Lyndon Johnson. So uh, tonight I thought I'd, uh, I'd talk a little bit about, uh, about Jack Kennedy, about the Kennedy administration. Uh, about uh, how it, he stands uh, in the view of, uh, of, of, of many uh, historians and, and journalists um, uh, today. Um, you know the story of his, his upbringing. His father was a, um, a, a Catholic immigrant uh, who went to the best schools, made a fortune in, uh, in importing liquor across, smuggling liquor across the uh, border from Canada in the movies, uh, managing the stock market. Uh, uh, Jack was the second of uh, nine children um, and uh, 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 of a, a member of a, of a, of a family whose, whose scion uh, was uh, immensely uh, ambitious. Um, uh, Jack uh, went to Choate, uh, then to Harvard. Uh, uh, he gained some notoriety in 1939 by writing a book on, uh, entitled Why England Slept. Uh, with, with his father uh, paid, um, I think, bought 100,000 copies and, uh, so that uh, he would receive the uh, proper uh, amount of attention. But Jack, uh, the, 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 the politician in the family, of course, was supposed to be Joe Jr. Uh, and, and Jack was going into business or law. But then Joe was killed in 1944 in a bombing raid over Europe. Jack enlisted in the service and won a... Uh, Reputation as a war hero, uh, PT-109. It was the beginning of his uh, celebrity uh, status. Uh, after the war, uh, with the help of his family, he ran successfully for, uh, for, for the U.S. Congress. Um, uh, the, he, his, uh, um, he, he ran as a, as a non-ideological um, um, uh, upper-class uh, Catholic New Englander and war hero. Uh, his political base was, uh, his political machine consisted of his family. His political base was uh, primarily working class. And uh, in Congress, he generally supported uh, social uh, welfare measures uh, that uh, were important to his constituents, uh, na national health care, uh, a higher minimum wage. Uh, he also established his reputation, his credentials, as a strident anti-communist. Uh, aided by uh, the, the actions of his brother Bobby, who became the counsel, uh, general counsel for the uh, McCarthy committee. 
Uh, in the 50s, he married Jackie, became uh, the, the, the kind of celebrity playboy politician. Uh, his father uh, br briefly maneuvered to, uh, to gain him the vice presidential nomination in 1956. Fortunately for Jack's political career, uh, that didn't work out because for the Democrats, 56 was uh, a, a year, uh, a, a disastrous year. Uh, after famously courting the Charles River intellectuals, uh, Jack Kennedy won, won the, 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 the liberal core uh, of the Democratic Party and secured the Democratic nomination in 1960, beating Lyndon Johnson, Stuart Symington, and, and, uh, and, and Hubert Humphrey. Uh, to his uh, brother's enragement, uh, uh, he selected uh, Lyndon Johnson to be his running mate uh, because he needed to carry the state of Texas, and uh, he believed that, that, uh, that Johnson could carry the state uh, for him. Um, now, the vision uh, of America's future that, uh, that Jack Kennedy identified uh, as the new frontier was actually an amalgam of ideas uh, primarily influenced by Payson Wilde, a Harvard political scientist who had been one of Kennedy's teachers. Uh, it was influenced by FDR's famous Commonwealth Club address of 1932 and, and, and by his concept of political courage that, that, that he articulated, that Jack Kennedy articulated in Profiles of, of, of Courage. In Kennedy's words, the new frontier offered the electorate a chance to choose, quote, between the public interest and private comfort, between national greatness and national decline, between the fresh air of progress and the stale, dank atmosphere of normalcy, between determined dedication and creeping mediocrity. The 1960 platform was, in truth, the most liberal platform in the Democratic Party's history. It promised, among other things, meaningful legislation to deal with segregation and discrimination. But in, the can uh, but in, the, uh, in truth, in the campaign that followed, uh, Kennedy uh, went out of his way to avoid stepping on any Confederate toes. By consistently uh, using the term constitutional rights during the campaign in southern and border states, uh, JFK, in consultation with Lyndon Johnson, uh, certainly an expert on Southern politics, allowed his mostly receptive audiences to interpret the meaning of constitutional rights for themselves. The Kennedy-Johnson team knew, of course, that most Southern whites did not perceive constitutional rights to include the federally enforced integration uh, of schools, housing, jobs, and public accommodations uh, that uh, the ADA, the NAACP, and other activists saw. And the strategy worked quite well. Uh, despite his status as a pro-civil rights New England Catholic, uh, Jack Kennedy received 52% uh, of the Southern vote uh, in 1960, 3% more than uh, Adlai Stevenson did in 1956. At a December 20th, 1960 meeting in Florida, Kennedy, his staff, and several Democratic congressional leaders agreed that during the next session of Congress, their legislative priorities would be, first, a higher minimum wage, second, uh, federal aid to education, uh, third, economic uh, development of depressed areas like Appalachia and the South, more public housing, and hospital insurance for the elderly, Medicare. Um, through his initial focus on, the, the, he and his advisors decided to try to win a couple of quick victories to get through the rural, the area redevelopment uh, program, uh, the minimum wage bill, score a couple of quick victories, and, and then move on to the more difficult 
uh, tasks at, uh, at hand. Uh, but they ran into rough waters almost immediately. The Congress did pass the administration's uh, um, uh, minimum wage bill, but it, in, in, it, but it excluded some three million uh, service workers, mostly women and, uh, uh, and, and persons of color. Inexplicably, inexplicably, Camelot refused to make use of Lyndon Johnson, the most talented, arguably the most talented congressional politician of his age. And as a result, at the time of the president's death, the Equal Accommodations Act, what would become the 1964 Civil Rights Act, <coughs> Medicare, federal aid to education, and the Kennedy tax cut were still languishing in committee. The war on poverty had not got past a juvenile delinquency program. Now, much has been written uh, recently on uh, Kennedy uh, and race, the Kennedy administration and, and race. The phase of the civil rights movement that began with the 1954 Montgomery bus boycott began to peak during the Kennedy years. The president saw the crisis spawned by the Freedom Riders, by Martin Luther King's incarceration, by the Birmingham uh, church bombings that killed the four young girls, uh, basically as a political problem to be managed at least until after the 1964 elections. Belatedly, in the summer of 1963, Kennedy began framing civil rights as a moral uh, issue. He did so primarily uh, at the urging of LBJ, who wrote a memo, uh, actually, to, um, to one of Kennedy's aides, arguing that the president had to come out in behalf of full citizenship for African Americans as a moral issue and he had to take this message uh, into the South. It's doubtful, in my opinion, uh, and uh, I think in uh, Godfrey's, uh, that uh, no matter what he did, what, uh, what rhetoric he employed, Jack Kennedy could never have gotten the 1964-1965 Civil Rights Acts, much less the Fair Housing Bill of 1968 uh, through Congress. Johnson would succeed not only because he made full citizenship for African Americans a moral issue, but also because he was a Southerner. If being a Southerner was a disadvantage on the national scene, it was an advantage uh, when it came to civil rights. During the filibuster over the 1964 <coughs> Civil Rights Act, Richard Russell, leader of the Dixie Association in the Senate, ran into Bill Moyers. Now you tell Lyndon, he said, that I've been expecting the rod for a long time. And I'm sorry that it's from his hand uh, the rod uh, must be wielded. But I'd rather be it, in, be it be in his hand than anybody else I know. Tell him to cry a little when he uses it. <laughs> now, Jack Kennedy's overriding interest had always been foreign policy. Uh, most of his inaugural address was devoted to it, and he frequently justified his domestic policies in terms of America's ongoing competition with the Soviet Union. But Kennedy's foreign policy suffered from a basic contradiction. He and his advisors insisted that they were uh, out to make the world safe for diversity, and that under their leadership, the U.S. would abandon the status quo policies of the past, uh, support change especially in the developing world. There, in the developing world, uh, at that time the primary battleground of the Cold War, he and his advisors supposedly planned openings to the left to facilitate what they called democratic development. According to Arthur Schlesinger, Jr., Kennedy fully understood that in Latin America, quote, 
The, military, the militantly anti-revolutionary line, unquote, of the past was the policy uh, and truth that was most likely to strengthen the communists uh, and lose the hemisphere uh, to the, as, as far as the Western democracies were concerned. At the same time, uh, the administration saw any significant change in the balance of world power as a threat to American security. Any significant geopolitical advance of communism was simply unacceptable. Kennedy, McGeorge Bundy, Dean Rusk, uh, Bob McNamara took very seriously Nikita Khrushchev's January 1961 speech offering support for wars of national liberation. Time after time, in Latin America, in Southeast Asia, in Africa, the Kennedy administration, when faced with the classic choice between progressive but Marxist-Leninist movements on the one hand and autocratic but staunchly anti-communist regimes on the other, chose the latter. <coughs> the two great Cuban crises dominate the historiography on the Kennedy foreign policy. The verdict is decidedly mixed. The Bay of Pigs incursion of April 1961 is generally viewed as a mission that was not only botched, but doomed to failure from the beginning. With some success, uh, Jack Kennedy and his defenders have blamed the fiasco on the Eisenhower administration. They inherited Then came the Cuban Missile Crisis of October 1962. The, uh, tr uh, the tribunes of Camelot have praised the president for rejecting plans for an invasion of uh, Cuba to get rid of the missiles, and for deftly ignoring the second and more belligerent of Khrushchev's proposals and accepting the first, in which the Soviet premier pledged to withdraw the missiles in return for a simple promise by the U.S. not to invade uh, Cuba. Armageddon, according to uh, Kennedy's defenders, was avoided and a new age of detente uh, introduced, uh, uh, signified by the signing of the nuclear test ban treaty. This interpretation uh, has not been as successful. Uh, critics argue that the crisis should not have happened in the first place, uh, that by launching an ongoing program, program to undermine the communist regime in Havana, even to the point of assassinating Castro, Jack and his brother Bobby uh, drove Castro and with him a reluctant Khrushchev to the wall that indeed the uh, Kennedy brothers uh, were the creators uh, of their own crisis. So uh, the verdict uh, as it now stands is that uh, JFK was a charismatic, intelligent man with large plans in the international sphere and modest ones in the domestic. He receives uh, little credit for the success of the civil rights movement, although critics acknowledge uh, the fervor of his brother in this regard and uh, give him credit for making legislative and rhetorical uh, beginnings. Um, the claim uh, made by Arthur Schlesinger and others that the Great Society originated entirely uh, with Richard Goodwin and, and other um, um, uh, Camelot uh, uh, activists, uh, and that had the president lived, it would uh, had to, the, the, this reform program would have been realized uh, to its fullest uh, uh, just as it was uh, under Lyndon Johnson uh, is, is, is an argument that's hard to support. Then, uh, as Godfrey indicated, it, there is the, if Kennedy had lived, there would have been no Americanization of the war in Vietnam. Uh, I spent a lot of time uh, in this field. Uh, I teach a course on the Second Indo-Chinese War. I've written 
uh, on the subject. Uh, I, I recently published a book on it. I can't find any convincing evidence to support this thesis. How and why Jack Kennedy would have acted differently from LBJ when the first North Vietnamese troops began coming down the Ho Chi Minh Trail in April of 1964, uh, I cannot fathom. But then there's the assassination, a phenomenon which has taken on a life of its own. An event uh, like 9-11 that has had ramifications far beyond the discrete and limited damage it caused. In the popular mind, it served to deify uh, Jack Kennedy, although in truth, uh, LBJ had as much to do with the making of the Kennedy martyr, uh, martyrdom as anyone. Um, I don't, uh, I, I cannot, I've, I've, uh, I've, I've heard people try to explain uh, the, the need that the Kennedy mystique and uh, Jack Kennedy's martyrdom fills in the national psyche, uh, and, and, and it's, it's, it's difficult to explain. I, 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 uh, uh, I'm an historian, I'm not a, uh, I'm not a student of current affairs. I, I think uh, I can understand uh, how it happened in the 1960s, but, uh, but, 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 the, but the mystique has survived. If you go to Washington, and if you look at any, uh, at any newsstand or any place that sells popular uh, glossy table books, there are going to be a book on the presidency. There's George Washington, uh, there's uh, 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 Franklin Roosevelt, and there's Jack Kennedy. Uh, if you look at the <coughs> PBS series, The American Experience, uh, in the, as, as the, features, the pictures flash across, and the great icons of American history, uh, Jack Kennedy is one of those one of those icons. But uh, uh, I'll, uh, it, it, it is a phenomenon that exists. Uh, and in fact, as a biographer of Lyndon Johnson, uh, I've discovered just how, uh, just how uh, powerful uh, that uh, mystique is. Thank you very much.